America After Trump. We have a special segment for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And for that, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist for The Washington Post. He teaches at Georgetown University, and we see him a lot on MSNBC. He's written seven books. The new one, just published, is titled One Nation After Trump. E.J. Dion, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, you open your new book by declaring that a crisis can be an opportunity. We certainly have a crisis. We have a president who's ignorant, narcissistic, reckless, abusive. I could go on. But how would you describe the crisis we are in right now? Well, let me first say, as you know, the book is co-authored with my friends, uh, uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. And um, we came together on this book initially because we felt this sense of crisis, that uh, somebody like Donald Trump really had no business being president of the United States, which we say right there on the first page of the book. But the opportunity, I think, is visible uh, all over the country. First, I think Trump has given the system a jolt. Um, There were a lot of things slowly decaying in the system, um, and Trump has sped this up to the point where no one can miss it. We've had a decline in political norms. We lay a lot at the feet of a radicalized Republican Party in our book. Um, uh, Trump has kind of obliterated political norms, and you don't realize how important norms are, which are basically basic understandings how people in power or close to power should behave. You don't realize how important they are until they disappear altogether. I've been saying a lot uh, in the Trump years um, that the wisest person is the political philosopher Joni Mitchell, uh, who said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm. And Trump is sure reminding us of that. Secondly, um, we're seeing sort of an autocratic side to Trump, which is a genuine threat. And we can see how our um, institutions can be subverted. You know, he had to, in classic autocratic fashion, he's attacking the courts, attacking the media, demonizing uh, his opponents, trying to undermine the very idea of facts. I mean, the notion of alternative facts. All of this has called forth um, a powerful response. I think in the media that I've been involved with all my life, I think there's a realization that uh, there is something wrong with false balance, and that you. You know, the media's job is to tell the truth, um, and if it's inconvenient, uh, you don't really have to say, well, there's another side to this story, when there really isn't another side uh, to a set of facts. You're seeing it especially in the mobilization um, around the country, both in civil society and in politics. Um, you, uh, every Trump action has drawn an extraordinary outpouring of civic activism, whether it was the deportations where people rushed to the airports, lawyers rushed to the courts, um, as you know, citizens rushed to aid uh, their neighbors, um, whether it's on the, the DACA uh, ruling where there was an immediate pushback. Uh, perhaps the most impressive pushback was on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, where many Republican congressmen were, who from very Republican districts we're shocked to see um, enormous turnouts of their own constituents saying uh, this law shouldn't be uh, repealed, that uh, we should build on it. Um, uh, finally, I think you're seeing some real activism uh, all the way down to the precinct level in the country. And we talk about a lot of groups in the country that are recruiting candidates for office up and down um, the ballot. Um, and people trying to turn anti-Trump anger 
into actual political organization on the ground. And um, this is something that needed to happen to make our democracy work in any event. And I think Trump is, has accelerated this process. And while the risks of Trump are enormous, that aspect of this period is very constructive and helpful. The subtitle of your book, One Nation After Trump, is A Guide for the Perplexed. And of course, you took that from the medieval Jewish scholar Moses Maimonides, whose book with that title was published in 1190. I learned this from Wikipedia. That Guide to the Perplexed sought to find rational explanations for many events in the Bible. I see that you, like Maimonides, are seeking rational explanations for, in this case, events in our recent political history, like what the hell happened to make Trump president? Do you have a rational explanation for that? Well, first of all, every single one of us is uh, deeply grateful that you compared us to Maimonides. So <laughs> okay. I will pass this on to my co-authors. Thank you for that. Um, well, there is a rational explanation uh, for uh, for this. First, we talk a lot in the book at the beginning about the fact that we now have a non-majoritarian democracy in the United States, and that cannot be forgotten that Trump lost the popular vote by 2.9 million, that the Electoral College is increasingly out of step with where people actually live in the country. We only had three elections from 1824 when popular voting started to 1996, where you had the electoral vote out of tune with the popular vote, and two of those were quite weird. There was really only one that was just straight out, out of line. Uh, we've had two such elections since 2000. We argue that's not an accident, um, because the Electoral College vastly overrepresents rural America, represents small, overrepresents smaller states, um, and compound that with the United States Senate, where by 2050, uh, seventy percent of Americans will live in fifteen states, which means seventy percent of Americans will have thirty percent of the Senate. Uh, represent, uh, which is there's something wrong with that. Then gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the impact of big money on politics. So that's one piece we really have to address as a country because it's making us an undemocratic democracy. Uh, but the other side of it is that the country went through um, an enormous amount of turmoil in a very short time. The Iraq War followed by the Great Recession, um, and all of this happening at a time when economic inequality um, has been rising, that we felt the fruits of globalization and technological change for a long time, but it really hit a crisis point. Um, and we don't uh, shy away from saying that uh, Trump ran, in many cases, a directly racist campaign. There's nothing else you can say about calling Mexican immigrants rapists. Um, and that there was certainly race and racial reaction and reaction immigration certainly played um, a very important role in his victory. But you can't write it all off to that. We, we think it's, it's a form of denial to say race wasn't part of it, but it's also a form of denial uh, to ignore the vast inequalities both among Americans as individuals, um, but also across regions, um, even within states. Uh, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts, where... Um, the old mill towns, like the one I grew up in, um, have really been hammered by economic change. They were, um, you know, Massachusetts is so democratic that they voted for um, Hillary by a, a large margin anyway. But the mill towns were more open to Trump than the traditional suburbs. And you see 
the split between Chicago and downstate Illinois, New York metro area versus upstate, um, and of course those key Midwestern states that Trump very, very narrowly um, carried in places like Erie and Reading, Pennsylvania, um, deindustrialization is re- has really hammered living standards. And so for progressives, I think um, there is potentially a, um, I think a useless argument, a counterproductive argument to say Trump was about race. No, he was about um, economic discontent. I think uh, we should accept that race played a big role in it, but the part we can most address are economic inequalities that actually affect parts of the white working class, but also a very large share of African Americans uh, and Latinos. And I, if I could add one more thing, the sure. I have been really struck thinking about the book and the election by the slogan of the uh, 1963 March on Washington, and the slogan was Jobs and Freedom. And what that slogan embodied is the idea that if you care about racial justice, you also have to care about economic justice. And if you care about economic justice, you have to care about racial justice. And that we need to bring these causes together and not split them from each other. Splitting them from each other is Donald Trump's game, and we shouldn't play that. So do you think that Bernie Sanders identified the issues that can be deployed to recruit Trump voters back into the Democratic fold? Of course, there's a lot of people at the Democratic National Committee who don't agree with that. No, I think Bernie um, identified a number of issues that actually Hillary Clinton picked up on. Um, She didn't go for single payer, but she did have a very substantial expansion of Obamacare. She came very close to adopting Bernie's uh, free college, and I think that young voters, not only in the U.S., but in Britain notably, um, have shown that they feel very excluded from uh, economic opportunity uh, in this period. Um, and I think Bernie um, addressing class division, which is something he's done all his life, um, is an important part of uh, of the puzzle here. Um, and so I don't think it's, uh, you know, I have a kind of very broad view of the left that you, the, the left can't win without the center left and the center left can't win without the left. Um, and I think what we need is not a, do you move to the left or move to the center? I think we need to focus on what steps do we need to take to create a more equal society? Um, what steps do we need to take to empower workers in an economy that increasingly disempowers them? Uh, Bernie talked a lot about that, but there were a lot of other people on the progressive side, I think, who were very open to that, whether they supported Bernie or Hillary. I'm, uh, yes, I am trying to pitch a big tent uh, here, because yes. I think that's the only way progressives can win. Last question. Your book is called One Nation After Trump, and you argue that Trumpism does not own the future. That is great news. Are you sure you're right about that? I deeply believe that. I, I truly and honestly do. I, I, I suppose I could get more publicity for the book if I denied a basic tenet of the book, but I can't. Um, you know, a couple of things here. Um, first of all, Donald Trump did not get a majority in the election, and he's hovering around 38 42% in the polls, the lowest polling uh, for a new president that we have ever seen. So from the beginning, he never had a majority of the country on his side, and unlike other presidents who try to reach out to their opponents, all he's done is reach out to a very narrow part of his base. And so he hasn't added to um, his percentage. Secondly, Trump is exceptionally weak uh, among younger voters. Um, 
he he did no better than, and I think he may have been a point weaker than Mitt Romney among younger voters. Hillary lost some ground, not to Trump, but to third party voting. Um, and so if, uh, you know, the young do own the future and they are not on Donald Trump's side, and um, I'm sure you've talked about this for a long time, the um, the future of the country is also a country that will be more demographically diverse, more Latino, more Asian, more African-American, and those um, communities are not at all enamored of Trump. So I think that, you know, in the long haul, um, the country is not going in that direction, but we have to fight in the short haul um, to, A, prevent the damage Trump can do. Um, you know, organizing did a good job on that around Obamacare. I think we've got to do the same around this awful reactionary tax bill. Um, and uh, also protect, um, you know, protect immigrants and African-Americans from uh, some of the things this administration could do or in some cases has already done. But we also have to build to the f- for the future. And I guess that's the last thing I want to say, if I could, about the book, sure. which is um, we think that opposition to Trump is important, but conversion, political persuasion, is also an important part of the story. And so the whole back half of our book is our sort of program for social reconstruction, if I can put it in those grand terms, where we talk about the steps we need to take to create a more just uh, economy, the steps we need to take to strengthen civil society, and a lot of steps we need to take uh, to reform our democracy. E.J. Dion, he's co-author of the new book, One Nation After Trump. E.J., thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Real joy to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 